Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Up in Singapore, the name East India Company, or the acronym EIC, is a familiar one. We've all heard of Raffles' expedition with the EIC arriving on the 29th of January at the mouth of the Singapore River, or how before that Raffles had to convince his superior at the EIC, Lord Hastings, of Raffles' idea of establishing a new British trading base in the region that would challenge Dutch control of the shipping passage through the Malacca Strait but do so in a way that would not antagonize the Dutch. Those are the familiar facts. Less familiar, perhaps, is the story of the EIC itself. Scottish historian William Dalrymple's latest book tells the story of the rise of the EIC. This is a cautionary tale of the first global corporate power with a vast army that in half a century grew to a private security force with over a quarter of a million men which managed to subdue an entire subcontinent and which was effectively ruled from a boardroom in London. I'm Michelle Martin reading, and I can't put it down, The Anarchy. And here is more from its author, William Dalrymple. William, what in this book did you want to add to the story of the EIC that hasn't been told before? There's a huge amount about the history of the East India Company, which is totally contemporary, which perhaps hasn't been brought out before in the story. Each generation rewrites history with a view to its own concerns. And today, at a period when you know Elizabeth Warren is talking in every campaign speech about regulating the great corporations and how to control the power of giant corporations, the history of the East India Company is now much more relevant than ever. After all, we've got uh, a corporate mogul in the White House. And the history of the East India Company looks very different in, in view of these new concerns. So this is a, a retelling of a very old story mm. with a completely new spin. Why was the EIC so successful? You tell the story about the EIC and you also tell the story of the two personalities, juxtaposed Robert Clive and uh, a Shah, a mogul. Why exactly was the EIC so successful? Well, the East India Company was around for about 300 years. At different times, like you know, any, any corporation, it had different strengths. Initially, it was very successful because of the spice trade. Then it harnessed itself to the mogul empire and was really the means by which mogul textiles India was then the largest producer of textiles in the world. It was the world's work, workshop in the 18th century. And the East India Company was the means by which these textiles shipped across the globe. Deindustrialization even in Mexico, thanks to the sheer quality and uh, quantity of, of these cheaply produced Indian textiles. And the East India Company is the means by which they, they, they reach the rest of the world. And then after that, there's this third moment, which is in a sense the real focus of this book, uh, which is when the East India Company moves from being uh, an empire of business into the business of empire and starts conquering great chunks of India with its own mercenary army. Not the British army, uh, but uh, Indian sepoys trained up by the company, often using money borrowed from Indian bankers. There's only ever about 2,000 white guys sitting in Bengal, uh, but they control an army of 200,000 Indian sepoys. And at that point, the company makes its greatest profits because it frankly assets mogul India and uses the tax revenues of India to buy its goods, which it then ships overseas for, for profit. So it's making a double fortune, one out of empire and, and secondly out of trade. 
Is there resistance to the EIC in real time as it's plundering the Mughal Empire within the UK? There's obviously a lot of resistance in India, but the East India Company uses the latest European military technology, which for about 40 years, 40 crucial years between 1740 and 1780, there is no comparable technology in India that can stop them. So for this short period, they have the run of the subcontinent. They can defeat any other army. And it takes 40 years for indigenous Indian armies to catch up. But yes, there is a great deal of resistance also in Britain. And that actually was probably the biggest surprise for me writing this book. An amazing amount of uh, editorial written in 18th century London that could be written by The Guardian in the 21st century, complaining about the power of corporations. The uh, one uh, diarist, Horace Walpole, writes, we have outdone the Spanish and the Portuguese, where they plundered the Aztecs uh, for faith. We have only the excuse of profit. So there's actually an awful lot of indignation in London. There are plays put on in, in the theatres where Clive, the head of the East India Company, is lampooned as Lord Vulture. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been great. Can you give us a scale of the plunder of the EIC? India has, is, in the early 18th century, the richest place in the world. It's, it's the, almost the only moment in, in history when India has larger industrial output than China, which for most of history is, is the world's greatest industrial leader. Mm. In the early 18th century, India controls, or the Mughal Empire controls about 37% of world GDP, while Britain, at the beginning of the story, when it's first founded the East India Company in 1599, has about 1.3% of world GDP. And it is the company's achievement, if you can call it that, to really reverse those two figures. By the uh, time the East India Company is wound up, Britain is producing about a third of world product and India's down to single figures. So it's a vast, it's a vast plunder. And, and, you know, all around Britain, we have these you know, treasure houses, these lovely country houses sitting in the middle of the English or Welsh countryside, full of mogul gold, silver, tapestries, palaquins, and so on. And this is, you know, this is one of the principal means that Britain made its money. And uh, the second being, obviously, the, the slave trade and the plantation economy of the Caribbean. Clearly, the British uh, economy it, is benefiting from the movement of all this wealth to Britain from the UK. Massively. But, but where massively, are the main po- yeah. pockets of power? Who's really benefiting all sorts of people. I mean, the losers in this are the old local aristocracy who lose control of India. Mm. The winners are, well, first and foremost, the company itself, its shareholders, who have massive dividends on and a huge uh, increase in capital. The directors of the company. The company becomes, you know, the, the, the country's single biggest employer. It spends half as much every year in Britain as the government does. It builds a third of the British docks. It uses India as a takeoff for other businesses. For example, it plants opium in Bengal, which it sells illegally in China, in the biggest narco trade in history. It buys tea from China, which it sells all over the world, but you know, even in, in Boston, and it's East India Company tea that is dumped in Boston Harbor at the Revolution. It's controlling about a third of British exports, a third of British imports. Uh, and it's an, it's an extraordinary, unique story of, of the world's greatest, biggest, most powerful and most ruthless corporation. It makes uh, you know, Facebook or Google or ExxonMobil look like uh, sweet little furry creatures in a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly Facebook or Google or ExxonMobil don't have armies. But that aside, is there any other corporation that matches the EIC in terms of potential power? 
Well, at the beginning of the story, the Dutch do. But the Dutch fade from the story by the middle of the, well, the end of the 17th century. And for most of the period of this book, throughout the entire 18th century and early 19th century, the East India Company is by a very long way the world's most powerful corporation. And, and there's never really been any corporation since which has, has been so massive and so powerful. It is a unique uh, thing in world history. Although I suppose you could argue that today's corporations like Google and, and Facebook and so on don't need armies because they're already inside our fridges monitoring what we're eating. Uh, you know, you're probably going to get some advert for East India Company tea popping up on your phone after you've made this <laughs> phone call to me. <laughs> they're listening. They're listening now, you know. <laughs> it's scaring me. So what are the lessons that this book holds about corporate regulation or corporate greed that is most relevant to us now? Well, it's just the necessity of keeping an eye generation by generation on corporate power. This book is about two things. It's first of all about how a corporation conquered India. But secondly, it's the wider story of the power of the corporation against the power of the state. And this is an ongoing dance. For some of the history, it looks as if the East India Company can actually bend the will of the British government by bribing parliamentarians, by covertly offering them shares. The, the corporations, the lobbying by corporations is invented by the East India Company. But at the end of this particular story, the state wins over the corporation because the corporation goes bust by excessive greed. It basically kills the goose, which is laying the golden eggs in Bengal by asset stripping India so thoroughly that the whole thing goes bankrupt and has to be bailed out by the state in an echo of you know the subprime collapses of a decade ago. And we find ourselves in a very familiar world where, where governments have to intervene to bail out mega corporations that have overextended themselves. In so many ways, the East India Company prefigures all the big issues of our time about huge corporations, both their vulnerability and their enormous power. In terms of violence, how does the brutality and I suppose the methods of EIC compare with the imperial regimes that accumulated the wealth in the first place? The company precedes the imperial regimes in that this is, you know, this is the beginning of the British Empire in Asia. And it's done not by the state. It's done by a corporation. This is, in a sense, the thing we've forgotten. It was well known in the 18th century, but in the 19th century, uh, the Victorians sort of span it to be a national story. But it's not. It's not the British government that conquers India in the 18th century. It's one British corporation based out of one office stock in London. Incredibly skeletal staff in a century into its existence. There's only 35 people sitting in the head office in London. It's an extraordinary story. The Mughal Empire, though, does conquer as well in order to attain all that wealth to begin with. Correct. Of course. I mean, we're not talking, uh, you know, angels against demons. History mm. is, is full of shades of grey. Mm. But what's I think the surprise here is that we've forgotten, in a sense, that the empire in India was built by a corporation, not by the state. It's not white British soldiers, by and large, which are fighting these battles. It's Indian sepoys paid for by the company who often borrow it from uh, the money from uh, Indian banking corporations. And that's part of the story, too, this interesting story of, of how the Indian financial sector, particularly the Mawari Jain bankers who control many of the finances of the Mughal Empire, how these guys are lending money to a company in preference to their own countrymen because they see it as a more secure home for their capital. You're a historian. Whose perspectives was it important that you had in this story, in this telling of the EIC? As a historian, I've always made a huge point of, of, of including as, uh, at least 50% as much 
uh, half the story has to be told by the other side. And and so I, I spent six years on this book, and much of that has been digging up old Mughal sources, uh, often in Persian and provincial libraries in India. Uh, and this material is there, and it's very strong. Um, plus, there's witnesses from the French who are also in India at this time, uh, and are looking very critically at what the British are up to. Uh, so um, I, I try and be an even-handed. I'm a Scot, and in a sense, we, we're in quite a good position to be even-handed in that we're both a colonised and a coloniser uh, <laughs> at different times in our history. <laughs> and uh, and I think and I, I try and incorporate both uh, uh, both perspectives equally. It's a remarkable story of one of the world's most magnificent empires, how it disintegrated and came to be replaced by an unregulated private company based thousands of miles overseas, answerable only to its shareholders. This is the story of the rise of the EIC like it's never been told before. I can't put this book down. I hope you'll enjoy it. It's titled The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company by William Dalrymple, my guest in Read Today. I'm Michelle Martin. Keep reading. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.